0: The startup, grow up, and scale up journey. This is The Paint of Scale, the Notion Capital Podcast. Paul, and this is the Notion Pain of Scale podcast. You've surely listened to our first episode of this series with Hector Garcia, and we mentioned many times serendipity. So, Stephen, tell me, is it serendipity that our guest shares the exact same <laughs> last name as you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> there definitely is some serendipity in there. So, our guest today is Alan Millard, and Alan's my cousin. Oh, there you and go. We kind of reconnected about five or six years ago, and Alan was, at the time, Working at um, Hiscox, he was the chairman of the, the UK business and the COO. And he was about to start a move to kind of really follow his passion, which also ties in with Icky Guy, who we're talking about with Hector, in terms mm-hmm. of investing his, his time in helping other companies embrace the very best qualities of healthy leadership with an organization called The Table Group. Yes, yeah, so that was a massive piece of serendipity, because I've read the books, in particular, The Five Dysfunctions of the Team, by Patrick Lencioni, who heads up the table group. And then to have Alan being really imbued in those philosophies and then jumping into that space and becoming the chair of one of our portfolio companies. Yeah, it's been a real delight over the last five years to get to know him again and to spend lots of time together.
0: So should you welcome him?
1: yeah so we're going to be talking about leadership today but more importantly how leaders can build high-performing teams i mean senior leadership teams and also smart and healthy organizations and and alan is going to be our our guide to that he's a principal at the table group one of the world's leading authorities on what alan might describe as ninja level leadership one of your kind of of nice go-to phrases and patrick Lancioni, who runs the table group written a series of very very successful works one of them as i mentioned already five dysfunction of the team but alan interestingly as well as being really immersed in that world also has worked at the very highest level in global organizations throughout his career he's got 30 years experience and a reputation of building highly motivated teams at the table group he works with executives from all over the world applying those principles of smart and healthy leadership he does that for us with our portfolio and is very active within our ecosystem. He's also the chairman of Judil, which is a UK-based fintech and one of our Notion companies. I already mentioned prior to the table group, he was the COO of Hiscox, chairman and CEO of the subsidiary Hiscox under Writing Limited. He's also got this constant desire to challenge himself. He's an experienced mountain climber. Oh, wow. He summited Manaslu, Everest, Matterhorn, oh. Mont Blanc, Denali. And something I didn't know, Alan, you're also a qualified skydiver. How did that come about? Yeah, I do like to challenge myself. I like to have a bit of fun too. Uh,
2: Skydiving was one of the more extreme things that I've done.
1: (laughs) I would have thought climbing Denali and Everest would be right up there. You're still on the
2: ground though, (laughs) Stephen. So I did a tandem sky jump and you feel like a sack of potatoes when you're strapped to someone else. So when I went up in the plane, there were other people just jumping out randomly and I wanted to do that. So I learned how to do it myself and qualified and did about 35 jumps in the end.
0: Fantastic. Wow. So welcome, <laughs> oh,
1: Alan. <laughs> welcome. Let's just dive straight in, shall we? I wonder if you can just kind of pick apart what you mean by smart and healthy organizations, which is one of the kind of phrases that I hear a lot at the table group and, and why that is so important.
2: Yeah, it's the crucial, underpinning element of what we do. All companies are smart. They recruit good people who are trained up, qualified in, in their jobs, sales, finance, operations, whatever it is. And we hold ourselves accountable for those jobs that we do. But actually the success of business is about the interaction and the alignment between those people and that skill and experience. And that's the healthy bit. So we talk about healthy being a multiplier of smart. It's helping you get the best out of the people that you've recruited and you've got around the table. And to be more specific, there are two things that companies always need to do. One is minimize confusion. And there's confusion every day, no matter how much time you spend trying to be clear about what your purpose is, what you're trying to achieve, what the priorities are. New information and new stuff happens every day. And that can undermine or cause confusion to anybody in the organization. So as a leader, you have to work really, really hard to keep the clarity, to reduce the confusion all the time and repeat yourself a lot. You know you're doing a good job if people can do a good impression of you. If you've repeated yourself so much that someone can actually do an impression of you saying it. And the other one is to minimise politics. Some politics is good. Good politics is the discussion and debate about where the priorities are in your organisation. Where do you need to invest the most? What is the most important area? So that's a good debate to have amongst functions and amongst leaders. When it gets out of control and it becomes personally led, or it's never really been wrestled down to the ground as to what the priorities are, so you have leaders effectively fighting against each other. That's, that's out of control politics, that's bad politics. So good politics is fine, keep it to the minimum. And what you get then, if you can maximise alignment, so minimise confusion, keep your politics to a discussion about priorities, then you're in a great place and you're starting to get the benefits of being healthy. And we point to three things. First one is more fun. People just love working in the environment where you've got strong teams, you've got each other's back, you know what you're trying to do, and you're totally aligned. That's a great place to work. If you don't have that, it can be the worst. The other one, and this is the important one, is productivity. This stuff's not just tree-hugging. This isn't just the soft stuff. This actually improves the performance of your company. And McKinsey have done an independent study on this and shown that companies will grow twice as fast if they're healthy with the same skills, the same kind of people, same organization, but just by being healthy, you can grow twice as fast. That's the prize. That's why this is so important. And then the third one, as i mentioned, actually, is keep your stars. Your best people will not tolerate a company that isn't aligned, that doesn't have clarity, that doesn't have great teamwork and a good environment and a good culture. They'll just go somewhere else that does, no matter how good your purpose, no matter how good the people are around them. If the environment's not right, if you're not healthy. They'll just go
1: elsewhere the starting point i think if i'm right is the high-performing team can you just talk us through the kind of principles that underpin how you build a high-performing team yeah so
2: a lot of people have read the five dysfunctions it's a very well-known book you should read it if you haven't pat lencioni is a frustrated scriptwriter, so he doesn't write to be clever he writes to entertain to engage so he tells stories so it's one of the easiest business books you'll ever read so i would recommend it talks about five levels, and these five levels build one on top of the other. And we'll move forward from the bottom to the top, just to say the top is about results. Okay, so we're going to get there eventually, but it's about performance of the team. First level is vulnerable trust. So anyone talks about teams talks about building trust. But this is a very specific kind of trust that we're talking about. This is vulnerable trust. This is trusting the people in your team enough to be truly yourself. So we all filter. We all try to sound good, sound intelligent, ask right questions, have intellectual debates when we're in meetings, but actually to show all of ourselves, to show when we make mistakes, to admit when we don't understand, or if something's confusing, or if someone's better than you, you know, that kind of vulnerability takes time to build. And the weird thing is about teams, just by being a team and sharing tasks doesn't actually help you build vulnerable trust. You have to work at it specifically. And that's what we help a lot of teams to do, is help them work through and build quickly that vulnerable trust that you need at that bottom layer. So that's the first step. And we should talk about what leaders need to do when I've gone through each of these layers. Once you've got vulnerable trust, then you can have a real debate. And this is how companies think. To think and to come to the right decisions and to understand a situation, you have to have passionate, unfiltered debate. Now, by passionate, we don't mean waving your arms around and shouting and getting emotional. By passion, we mean talk about the important stuff. And there are three things that need to be present for you to match what we call passionate, it has to be high stakes, really important. You have to care about it. You have to be emotionally invested in whatever that topic is. And there has to be a difference of opinion within the team. That's a triangle to make sure that every debate you have and the time you have together as leadership teams is always in that triangle. Don't do the simple stuff. Don't do the easy stuff. That can be done outside of the leadership meetings that you have. That can be delegated. You as leaders of companies need to focus on the most difficult stuff. So that's the conflict. You need to know how to have conflict in a positive way where you stay on topic. Now, to do that, sometimes you're going to get it wrong. Sometimes it's going to feel like a personal attack and people can get quite heated and get off topic. So as a team, you need to be able to self-regulate and stay on the topic And be curious about different people's perspectives. We quite often give opinions that are just the sum of all our skills and experience, and we go, this is the answer. But to help understand different perspectives when people are debating, you have to move down what we call the ladder of inference. You have to start to explain how you got to that opinion. What was the particular project that went well or failed or experience that you had that makes you feel so strongly about the opinion that you have? And then if you compare those between you, you will find the common ground and you'll be able to figure out what the best solution is. So passion unfiltered debate to have healthy conflict helps the team think and get the best out of everyone that is around the table. Once you've done that, you've decided what you need to do. Third level is commitment. Now commitment stage. This is an interesting one because I've done this in the past. We can all fall into the trap in a meeting of intellectually agreeing to something. Yes, I've understood the facts. I've heard the debate. And yes, I agree with you, Mr. Boss, that this is the right thing to do. But it can be just a certain intellectual level. What you need is emotional buy-in to each decision. Yes, I'm in. I really believe in the decision we've made and I'll do everything I can to make that happen. It's another level of commitment which is often missed. If you don't have that emotional commitment, when you leave the room, it will start to unravel. So you really need to emotionally commit in order to have longevity of those decisions that you've made at the commitment level. To do that, there's two things you need. Clarity and closure. Clarity, be really clear about the decisions you made, because everyone might have a slightly different view. And true closure. I don't mean consensus. Consensus is the most inefficient model in the world. You just need to look at the UN to see that. It's not consensus, but it's agreement. So you can disagree and still commit to the decision. That's the most effective, efficient approach to running a business that you can have. So clarity and closure at that level for commitment. Once you've made those decisions, you know what you're going to do. You're all aligned on those decisions and alignment is so powerful. That's where you need to make sure you stay true to the team, stick to the commitment, stay aligned. Otherwise, you start to create confusion, as we talked about earlier. Once you've done that, you're out of the room. You then come to accountability. Now, again, this is a specific kind of accountability. This is not, I'm accountable to do my job. Most leaders have that, a high sense of accountability. It's being accountable to each other, peer-to-peer accountability. So holding your teammates to account for the promises that they've made when you make the decision, not do hill climbing, as we call it, not go to the boss. That's the worst way of working as a team. Go directly to each other and hold each other account to the promises that you've made. Peer-to-peer accountability, much more effective. You need hierarchies to run an organisation, of course, but being hierarchical is totally wrong and very inefficient and slows you down. So avoid that. And then top-level results. Two things needed to be great at this level. One is to treat your peers and your leadership team as your number one team. We so often stay in our safe place, in our, in our home territory, if you like, of the department or the area than the team that we run. It's a nice place to be. These are people that work for you. You've recruited them. You work with them a lot. You know the name of their dog. You know how to work together. That's your safe space. And it's in an area where you are pretty good at what you do. But actually, the most difficult problems are multidiscipline problems across the organization. So you need to change your emphasis to your peers to work more closely with them to solve those most complex problems that are in the organization or the highest priorities. That's where you need to focus as a team. And you also need to be motivated to win together or lose together. No one on the team should feel like they can win, even if the company is suffering or someone else on the team is suffering. You only win together. There's no other way.
1: It's a powerful picture. So we've built that high-performing team. We should say we're building it because, I mean, it never really stops, does it? How do we then take that out of the room, actually create that smart and healthy wider organisation? Presumably that's where the real kind of value lies. Yes. The reason why you can
2: move twice as fast as an organisation if you're healthy is that power of alignment. And to create true alignment, you need real clarity in your organisation. We talk about six things that need to be decided and communicated again and again by the leadership team to the rest of the organisation. I'll just go through them quickly. And you can check this out in the book. First question, why do we exist? People talk about vision or purpose or mission. We all think we know what they are, but we find it hard to differentiate between them. So we simplify that to, why do we exist? Simple as that. How do you make the world a slightly better place by existing? Or what would be missing if your company didn't exist? It's at that level. It's the inspirational level where we all want the world to be a better place. And we work hard to achieve that. Something you believe in. More than just getting paid and paying the mortgage, there's something that drives you that makes you want to get up in the morning when that alarm goes off, to get up and work harder again because you believe in what your company can do to make the world a better place. So why do we exist? How do we behave? Second question, what kind of people do you want to work with? What behaviours, what values do you want each person in the organisation to hold and maybe not achieve every day, but at least aspire to following? That's so important. Who do we want around us when we're in the room? It's only powerful if at some point it affects your business financially because you hold your values truer than the revenue or the profits you might want to make. So what would you actually sacrifice revenue for or say no to a customer for or get rid of that brilliant person in the organization because you're holding true to the values? If there's no impact, then those values don't mean anything. So they have to hold true even when it's tough, even when it might impact the business. I think it's the head of Netflix that says, get rid of the brilliant jerks. Don't tolerate those people who are amazing technically, but really become toxic in your organisation. So really hold true to your values in all circumstances. What do we do is the third question. That's a simple description of the actual functions that you do. What are you actually trying to achieve? It's not the aspiration, it's just the pure function. You know, so we're a B2B SaaS business that services financial companies in the UK, There's an example of a descriptor. Question four then, question four is crucial. How do we succeed? What differentiates us as an organization from our competition? What do we hold true to that where we're better than the competition? Now, this is something that develops over time. It's what are the capabilities that you're going to invest in, over-invest in, to make you better than the competition? If you try to invest in all functions and all capabilities in your organization, Then you just be average at everything you'll spread the investment and the money that you have and the prioritization across everything. You'll be average and average gets killed. You have to decide what you're going to be great at. And what are you just going to be okay at? That's how do we succeed? Question five is prioritization. What's most important right now? You can galvanize your whole organization behind one project. That's hugely powerful rather than 15 or 20. In fact, one client I worked with, oh, the record of they had 67 priority projects. That's crazy. They never get anywhere doing that. 67 priorities. That's
1: one for every week of the year and some left over. (laughs) (laughs) And they struggle to reduce them. Yeah, it's crazy. That's just
2: an extreme example. And then the last one, who does what? Clarity about your roles and responsibilities that you will be held accountable for. That's the clarity of the organisation. You get those six right, then you're in a great place. But as you said, Stephen, these are something you have to continually work at that continually evolve. But the people that work for you will love you if you have that that real clarity. What it does, the side effect of it is, is everyone in your organisation knows what you're trying to do. Now, what that does is it moves decision-making down the organisation because people are comfortable making decisions. They understand, they have the confidence that they can make the right decision because you've given them clarity. Therefore, they make them. It speeds up the organisation by pushing that decision-making down. And it makes the lives of leaders a lot easier. If you are a leadership team and you find yourself doing everything, that's your fault because you haven't spent time giving that clarity to the rest of your people in your organization. They want to do a good job. They want to
1: make decisions. They only refer back up to you if there's too much confusion and not enough clarity. It's interesting when you, you talk about kind of creating clarity and you talked about that kind of raise on debt from that sense of purpose. Have you, have you come across the book Guy? No. You must read this. This is our previous guest. Hector Garcia lives in Japan. He's a best-selling author. And he wrote a book called Ikigai, which is effectively a Japanese secret to a long and happy life. And it's about finding the sense of purpose that comes to an individual when they're, they're focused on things that they love to do, that they're good at, that they're paid to do, and that support a greater purpose. And it can work at a macro and a micro level. When you were talking through, I thought well, there's, there's massive parallels actually between the principles he was laying out on the episode last week. One of the things that really strikes me is that everything you talk about is just common sense, but applying that well is really hard. It's
2: surprising, isn't it? We give that warning at the beginning when we work with teams just to say, this is common sense. You're going to nod all the way through this as we explain it because you're going to know it's right. But then when we start having the conversation of does it exist in your organization, are you doing these things, then you realize actually you're not. And it's a tough one to to answer why that's the case. But I would point to busyness. We all like to be busy. We love the, the energy that you get from being busy. We feel good if we've answered 150 emails and done 10 meetings and stuff and just feel like we're adding value. But those are type one type of activities, and this is a type two. So type one being important and urgent, and then type two, which is important but not urgent. So I think our stuff is in that area, type two activities. Those are the ones where we have to deliberately take time to do. We have to be very, very intentional about doing them and avoid the busyness, avoid those sort of important, urgent things and really focus on this. I think that's the key reason. It's a bit like health as well. You know, we call it organizational health because it's a bit like physical health. You know you should do it. It's really obvious. If someone tells you, you go, yes, yes. But do you do it all the time? And it's a bit like that with organizational health. So to be a great leader, you have to be a reminder of this stuff. But I love the model of the work because it's common sense. It's plain language. It gives you a language to talk about dynamics between people. And it gives you a structure and a framework that you can all follow. But it's not prescriptive. A lot of stuff you see is you must do this in this way. It tries to give the total answer. This is a framework within which there's a lot of freedom and context that you can put into as a leader for your business and your situation. It gives you a framework that you can build your clarity and your teamwork within.
1: That's why I love it. to take you back to the foundational layer of your pyramid of building a high-performing team, which is about creating vulnerable-based trust. And I want to just try and think about it from two perspectives. One is a, a typical executive leadership team, and perhaps there's some new people on that team, or perhaps there are a new team that's been formed. But then I also want to think about the challenge for a, a CEO of a venture-backed business who, on his or her board, has got two or three investors, perhaps an in LED, And I'm just wondering if you've got some thoughts in terms of how in either of those situations, a CEO can build the trusted relationships they need for both of those teams to work incredibly well. Yeah, it's a really good point, And it's a fairly unique
2: position where the CEO runs a startup is that they're kind of the chairman as well quite often. So they have to play two roles. The CEO needs to be the bridge between those two perspectives, those two teams. A bridge between their own leadership team And if you like, the team of the board and investors, both have got quite different jobs to do. I know it's pretty obvious. The leadership team obviously has to execute, decide and execute how they're going to be successful. And the investors and the board just want to know that that's going to happen and give guidance where they can to help them decide what's most important. Now, the CEO has to be the bridge between the two. They're different perspectives. And I would go as far as Protecting their leadership team from the investors. So, not only a bridge, but also a buffer between the two. Quite a hard role to play, but that's the way we talk to CEOs how to be effective between the two. So, don't merge the two, don't try and meld the two, but actually treat them with respect of the power and perspective that both teams have. Obviously, the CFO will will often be a bit of a bridge too, but the CFO is the honest broker, if you like, of the performance of the company. The CEO is the one who's managing the relationship and the communications. The other thing I would say for the CEO when dealing with the board is focus as much as you can on the strategic decisions. That's what investors and boards most want to talk about. What are your strategic choices? Where are you going to invest? How are you going to win? Some of those clarity questions we talked about. Get them involved in those conversations. Too often I see boards focusing on performance, the day-to-day performance. Where are your metrics? Where are you at? What are you achieving? And that kind of forensic assessment of short-term performance actually isn't very useful. It's a safe place for investors to be because metrics are clear and they can challenge and push and see what performance is happening. But those metrics are the results of decisions that have already been made about your priority and your strategy. So it's too late. So many of those metrics are lagging indicators and therefore not helpful. It's already happened. You're already on the back foot reacting to things that have already happened. So to get the most out of the board, focus on the future, focus on strategic decisions, put those items on your board agenda first, put the metrics and the assessment of current performance last. Still do it because you you want the forensic assessment and investigation from the investors, but put it last to keep it within context. You can get the key questions out, but by putting it last, then you can time bound it and not get carried away with something that has already happened. Focus on the future.
1: Actually, building the trust. You know, if I'm the, the CEO and the chair, and I've got my senior leadership team, and I, we do our offsites, and we're meeting every month, we're probably chatting every day. And then my board, I might only be meeting them four times a year. How, how do I? Have you got some examples or suggestions of? Oh, I'm not sure if exercise is the right word? Practical advice on how to build that trust. So that you can have the open and honest discussions about the future and about strategy and about the stuff that really matters. Yeah, it's a good point. How do you build trust on a board when you don't meet
2: very often? It's quite difficult. I I would say that actually that trust is built outside the boardroom. What we try to do with the companies I'm involved in is whenever a non-exec or an investor is interested in an element of the business, get them involved. Get them close to that area and get a benefit of their advice and experience in that particular area separate to the board because the board is a little bit of a ceremony is a bit of a process and doesn't always allow for an investor or a non-exec to get close and understand what's going on and so actually it's not the best place to build trust the best place is through projects or through particular investigations that they can get close to to get closer to the people involved in the business and the detail of the organization then the other element is while well, it's the vulnerable trust level at the bottom of the teamwork Being vulnerable with the board as a CEO, not easy to do, but you should. You should really talk about the areas of the business you're worried about, the things that you might need help on, where you've made a mistake. Now, the strange thing about that is people don't do that because they feel weak. What it actually does is it draws people close to you. If people can see that you need support and you need help, then they will be drawn to you because they'll want to try and help. Now, if you do that every time you meet them, then that's a different situation. That's a credibility issue. But given that you're a competent CEO, you know what you're doing most of the time, then share the times when it's not quite right or you are worried. That's what builds trust. That's what builds a high-performing board and having a proper debate. So you start to follow the same model in a board as you do with leadership teams. And the job of a leader with any team, any environment with vulnerable trust is to go first. The situation starts with you. If as a CEO, every time you turn up at the board, everything's perfect, you're totally organized, the plans are clear, everything's going fine, and you're defensive, people know that's not the truth. You know, we're all 80% brilliant and 20% rubbish. They need to see the rubbish bit of you in order to know who you are, where you're coming from. And then when you speak and when you present something, it will be with authority because they will know that if you are struggling and there are problems, they will hear it. So when you tell them that everything is going fine and, you know, you've had success, they will believe that too. To trust each other, we have to see the rubbish bits.
1: I really like that. It really, really made me smile. 80% brilliant, 20% rubbish. I mean, I'd, I'd be quite happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I completely get where you're, where you're coming from. And I, and I think there's two really, really important things in there. The idea of getting the NED who has a specific functional capability or a specific sector expertise or a specific stage expertise and getting them involved in that part of the business. I think that's very, very powerful. And then being prepared to ask for help. Absolutely. Um, Based on competency, as you said, but, you know, on the whole, most of the people who are sitting around the table will want to help and people like to as well. I just wanted to kind of just go down one final thread, which is kind of the, the ripple down effect from senior teams to functional teams. I mean, you would have experienced this at Hiscox. You had a very large organization. You created that high performance at the senior leadership, but how do you then ripple that down to the various functional teams so that those are operating as effectively as the senior leadership team or, or the board might be operating?
2: Yes, it has to be done deliberately. It won't just happen. Quite often, there's an assumption of things that are agreed that somehow by osmosis that everyone in the organization will know. It to be quite deliberate about it. One of the things quite interesting is when we work with teams, they'll often build the confidence about being a leadership team, but it's kind of enclosed. So we create an environment of high performance. They get really close. They have passionate unfiltered debate. They commit to decisions, et cetera. So that's working well. But actually you have to move that down the levels of the organization. And you know when a team's got it, when each individual leader on that team has the confidence to start spreading what high performance looks like and what clarity looks like with their own team. And they become ambassadors of organizational health. That's the true switch. That's when the whole organization starts to benefit from the approach we're talking about. As a leader, you not only have to be a great team player within your leadership team, you have to lead organizational health down to your teams and ask for the same high performance, the same focus on the five levels of what high performing looks like with their team and to talk about what the clarity that the leadership team has agreed to, what that means to them within each function. So you have to deliberately help them own the clarity of the organization and then pass it down to their people. So this goes through at each level. I sometimes quite like to check when I walk around an organization and just ask anybody, what's the clarity of the organization and see, see who knows, see if they believe in it see if it actually affects and matters to them on a day-to-day basis. I read an article which said you can tell the strength and performance of an organization by talking to the team leaders, the first level team leaders of organization, because they're the ones on the front line. They're the ones who have people working for them, that they're guiding, they're making decisions on. So the most powerful place for organizational clarity and performance of organization is that first level team leadership. And that's quite difficult because those are the guys who have the least experienced. They've probably just been promoted to team leader. They're still figuring it out themselves. So as well as them being the most important, they're also the least experienced and probably the most vulnerable. So the place I would look the most, if you manage managed to get down through the layers of your organisation, the place to check that is first level team leadership.
1: That's great advice, Alan. So how does COVID affect all of these principles in a, a remote first world, which many of us are operating in?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it's something that we're exploring as we work with teams. Let me go through the five levels and, and, and talk about what we've seen so far. Okay, so bottom level of high-performing teams is vulnerable trust. The reason that's important because it speeds you up. There's no surprises. You admit when you've made mistakes. You're honest in situations. Now, it's interesting, remotely, what we're finding is actually it's a more relaxed environment. So people are being more themselves. You see a bit of their home life, it's more integrated. So in some ways that relaxes people. We're finding that there's quite an equalising impact of being remote. Everyone is more similar. So more horizontal facing, more easier conversations. So actually vulnerable trust, we believe, is increasing in remote situation. Then moving on to conflict is the opposite, actually. We don't like to have conflict remotely because we can't put an arm around someone afterwards. We can't have a, you know, have an argument and then you walk away and you're suddenly in your own house and you're not with those people anymore. You can't have the corridor conversation to make things are okay, have a cup of tea in the break and check in on each other or put an arm around each other. So because we haven't got any way of recovering, we tend to protect the meetings that we're having from conflict. So you have to work harder at that. And check in by phone afterwards. You can always ring someone up afterwards and say, was that okay? So I think that's actually harder and one to watch for. The leader's job more than ever is to mine for that conflict and that difference of opinion. We say it's calling out the face. Call out someone when they're screwing up their face and they're not happy. You can see that on Zoom just as easy as you can in real life. The conflict is harder, so watch out for that one. Commitment. It's interesting. So when you commit to a decision in a meeting and then if you emotionally buy into it and you want that decision to stick, in a remote environment, again, it can unravel quicker. What there isn't is the casual interaction. So when a decision is made, maybe two leaders in a meeting are just having a chat after the meeting, and they can confirm and clarify and engage after that in a way that might be really important. So you need more structure at the commitment level to make sure the clarity is there, The buy-in's there and you check in afterwards. So it's that social interaction that you get in an office that's missing that keeps the commitment going to decisions that have been made. So that one is also a watch out. You probably find that your decisions unravel quicker. So you have to work harder and provide more structure to keep those decisions going and keep the consistency in your organisation. Okay, so the next level is accountability. So peer-to-peer accountability. This is harder to do in a remote situation because you have less interaction. So your weekly meetings, your regular leadership meetings need to be great. We call meetings the contact sport of leadership. So you need to get really good at them. So make sure that there's time and space in your meetings to hold each other accountable. Make sure that if someone's made a promise that they haven't actually delivered on, that they feel awkward and it will be sorted out. It's so important in teams. So look to your meetings when you're remote because it's harder to do outside of that. And then the results, winning together or losing together. What's interesting about this is COVID is better. Teams are better, more focused on what needs to be done and have a collective responsibility for achieving results. So this is better within teams when it's remote. I think we've seen the death of presentism, the death of just turning up at the office and by being there, you're doing your job, leaving your jacket on the chair so that it looks like you're still there. This is actually a great impact of working remotely, much more focused on value rather than just being there and turning up. So I love this change that's happening. I think we'll have higher performing teams. If the other lower layers are looked after, watch out for conflict, watch out for support of meetings, of decisions. You'll actually get better results as a result of working remotely, I believe.
1: Yeah, There is a, a stronger sense of unity Kind of common cause that I've witnessed within our organization and within the companies that, that we work with. But you've got to work so much harder. You could be in a situation where you've got plenty of room in which to work, you've got privacy, and, and not everybody necessarily has. And, and so I think there's a need for more humanity in the way we interact with people.
2: Often people will get themselves into a leadership position or aspire to being a leader because they want to make a difference and they feel they like can do that in the best way, or it's a sign that they're successful we actually believe the opposite. Not everyone should be a leader. It should be seen as a responsibility, not just a power or a right that comes with the job. It's a responsibility to look after people and develop them and get as much out of them as you can. But caring for them is so important, especially now. It's so important that leaders are motivated in the right way. We talk about a balance between pace and dignity, and I think this is more important than ever. You need to balance the two. Obviously, as a leader, you need to push pace through your organization. But if you overdo the pushing of pace, which has happened a bit in some companies, you get burnout. We're seeing some of that. That needs to be balanced with dignity. So knowing when the right time to slow down, to stop, to give more resources and more attention to an area that's struggling, to look after people when they need it is hugely important. But likewise, if you do too much dignity, then you can get mediocrity in your organization and people just slow down because there's no pressure and they're kind of looked after and it's all wonderful. So the balance of a leader must be between pace and dignity. That way you get high performance and loyalty. People will work so hard for you if they know that you've got their back. That's an old saying, but it is really important. People want to make a difference. They want to work hard. They love to be loyal and making a difference. You push them too hard and you don't look after them, you get burnout. So the balance between the two is hugely important.
0: I really love that balance you struck out. As we go on through these remote teams, we will end up in an effect where it's not only the existing teams that work together, but it will be onboarding of new members of the teams. Is that a challenge for leaders to onboard new people that don't have all these little signals that you actually mentioned, which is, you know, in the office, your first days, your first week, your first month where you gotta interact with every other member of the team and suddenly you have to do that through Zoom, which we know has a limited amount of signalling, perhaps limiting the time, it's only thirty minutes and you don't have the time to go in the water cooler and grab a coffee. Do you think it's gonna be a challenge going forwards?
2: It doesn't seem to have been. It's strange. You just thought it would, but if you follow the structure and advice we've been giving then someone joining the team knows what to expect. They know what's expected of them. They know what the hurdle is to be a good team player. In the high-performing team structure, it's really clear how you're expected to behave and what's expected from you as a team member, as a leader as well. And if the clarity is there in the organisation and you've worked hard on that, then anyone joining has got a language, a structure, clarity that they can very quickly follow. So it makes healthy organisations even more important than ever because you can't just rock up to a meeting Hey, here's the new guy, Bob. Welcome. Right. No, no, no. Because you can't have the water cooler moments. You can't have the chats. You can't have the social interaction as easily in order to explain those things. But by following this structure, you bring them into the meetings, you bring them into every day and they have something that they can follow and be part of. That's what we've seen. Of course, we miss the social interaction and meeting
1: people in person,
2: but that will happen over time. Of course, it's not missed as much as we thought.
1: So, thank you, Alan, so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. How can people learn more? Buy a book. That's the first thing. I sound like a salesman, I don't. I don't <laughs> mean...
0: <laughs> it's a great book. We will vouch for yeah. it.
2: Yeah, it's an easy book. It'll tell you what we're about, and then once you've done that, go onto the website, Table Group website. It'll tell you everything there, and then our contact details are on there. What I love about our job is most people read the book, they understand it, they see the true value. So there's self-selection that goes on by the time they contact us. We don't advertise, we don't market ourselves. People come to us because they understand the power of it and we can have a great conversation and then see how we can work together in the future. Perfect.
1: Alan, thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a real inspiration working with you and the rest of the Table Group team. And I'm, I'm actually two minutes late for a, a Notion Slash Table Group Coaching Program. Which we're running <laughs> with a group of our founders right right now. Alan, thank you again. It's been thank you so uh, much. It's been great.
2: No, it's been a pleasure. And Stephen, you mentioned getting to know each other better as cousins. We should have done that anyway. But I love the fact that we're now closer just from our love of entrepreneurs and the importance of this kind of work. Thank you.